This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about how recent news in the media business matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz. And I'm Alex Entner. In this week's episode, we welcome Megan Ankerson. Megan is a colleague of Amanda's at the University of Michigan and is the author of Dotcom Design, The Rise of Usable, Social, and Commercial Web. She's here to talk about her book and how it relates to media industries. Megan, welcome to Media Business Matters. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Megan, remind us what the web was like in 1990. Well, um, in 1990, the the 25th anniversary of the web. And so this was the question, like, wow, what exactly are we celebrating? What happened 25 years ago? We were celebrating the very first articulation of a proposal of something called global hypertext. The word World Wide Web had not even been invented, and the proposal was rejected. So it's, it's I think, inspiring to think <laughs> that it all gets its start in, in a, on a way where the official birth is a rejection. <laughs> There's lots to move forward from there. So in any case, in 1991, the first website goes online. Uh, Tim Berners-Lee, the, one of the primary architects, establishes the technology and puts everything together enough in, in order to upload a website to the CERN server where he worked in Switzerland. It's a technical scientific, and a very small, compared with other ways that people were using the internet at the time, community of people. So when does the web become interesting to you as an object of study and why? It's a really selfish answer. Why? Because I graduated from college in 1996 and I didn't like the job that I had signed up for. It was advertising. And I worked in that job for about two months. But still, it was just not, I was, what is going to happen with my future? And meanwhile, there's this discussion about this new thing, the World Wide Web. So I decide to go back, find like a, a mentor at the college that I just graduated from, learned how to make websites and became a, I guess, a teaching assistant or a research assistant for this professor. And so for me, the web is it starts to get interesting around 1996 because that's when I first <laughs> saw it. And it is... It's striking to me now even to go back and, you know, see examples of the web from that time and how quickly between 1996 and, say, 1999, the growth of the industry and the growth of what a good website looks like changed, like, enormously many, many times over that three-year period. When it comes to the web, I've typically been taught and have kind of heard, you know, a separation between Web 1.0 and Web 2.0. Now, your book seems to focus more on Web 1.0. So can you give an explanation as to what that is and what that means in the context of the conversation? The book was in many ways inspired by an annoyance with that term Web 1.0. My annoyance only being because it seemed to suggest that it was an inferior web before it got better, before we improved it, before the technology got better, before the industry figured it out. And when you go back and you actually look at you know, the evidence of the you know, conversations that were going on at the time, 
um, and the websites that people were making and the, I mean, how many books do I have over here of like, you know, the best way to make the web or how to do it or what makes it usable? How do you sound? Like all of those lessons constantly changing. I think that the idea of web 1.0 is there as a marker in order to make sense of social media today. And in fact, I don't think anybody really uses the terms web 1.0 or web 2.0. They don't in the industry. Nobody in the industry uses that. If you say web 2.0 to somebody that works in the industry, as I did when I was interviewing people for my book, they're like, oh yeah, I remember that conversation a decade ago. Yeah. What do you want to know? I feel like I've heard it more in classes than I ever have out in the field working as an engineer. And that was sort of my thinking. The reason why this web 1.0 is being propagated is I think we're teaching it. I think it's our fault. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's, a, it's a way for people that care about researching the web and the internet and so therefore care about historicizing those practices that want to put contemporary practices in a context that makes sense compared with changes. It's useful, but it's just sort of gone uninterrogated. The book was a way to go back and say, let's take the formation of this cultural industry seriously and let's look at and talk to the people that were making the web at the time. What were they excited about? What were they frustrated with? Why did they leave jobs? Why did they do their own startups? So just trying to understand the logic behind those decisions and the, and the relationships between all of these different areas, advertising agencies, uh, new media, startup firms, networking solutions providers, constant, like a net of connections that was sort of reconfiguring over a decade. What would you describe as as some of the key web businesses around that time? Or what were the key, what were the sites that, let's say, the most people would even know about? I think part of the conversation of the history of the web is, right, it didn't used to be commercial, right? And so as you're getting going there around 96, is the web already commercial at that point? Absolutely. That has been, in fact, some of the very first, I guess, initiatives into making commercial websites were some of the first websites. I think it was a, a corporate product by, o, by the O'Reilly Media Company that came out in 1993. Um, so that was super, super early. But I see in the advertising trade press 1994 as being the key year that advertising agencies woke up to the interactive possibilities. And there was a whole bunch of reconfigurations and shakeups in response to a couple developments that happened in 1994. In any case, when these first commercial sites, the first one that I talk about in the book is a site that was launched in October of 1994 by the Zima company. Remember Zima? No. no. It's actually having a comeback, I think, of right course, now. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. Um, I pretend that that was like part of a promotional thing for my okay. book. Anyway, the Zima website in 1994 was like one of the first, you know. Zima efforts. is a clear malt beverage for those who weren't alive in the <laughs> 1990s. It, not only that, it's a clear malt beverage that had a huge marketing like push, and then it sort of like became a bit of a national joke, like Zima. It sort of was trying to be very masculine in oh, its yeah, approach. Oh, yeah, the heels of the wine cooler. Yeah, but it was confronting, I think, some, some conflicts there. Anyway, Zima as a brand was really, really struggling. 
But one of the things that Zima did as a company was really experiment online. And one of the things that they did was hire a interactive company instead of going with their traditional advertising agency in order to move forward with their first web effort. And they hired this company called Moda Media, who uh, their background was, I mean, it was actually in um, direct marketing and like telephone mm-hmm. targeting. And that was a huge thing at the time. People would like call in. I think there was something like a Pepsi ad, an interactive ad that was that you would call in and hear Ray Charles sing if you dialed this right number. <laughs> anyway, these are the types of like interactive promotions that they had been experimenting with. So, and another thing that happened in 1994 was Ed Arts, who was the uh, CEO Pro- Procter and Gamble, issues this sort of like you know wake up call during the forays, the big advertising convention in the spring of '94, and he's like, "Wake up to advertising!" And so everyone's like, "Oh, you know, t- take note. This is the biggest advertising dollars." And what are you saying? You want an interactive company? It's like within weeks, people are like, you're the VP of new media. You're working on a white paper on this. And people were, I think, excited about it and interested, but didn't know what they were doing. And this is sort of how these things play out when a new industry is coming or a new media um, coming together. Advertising industries have insights into the brand and like the technology companies have insight into like, well, what's going to work like as an interactive forum. There's a competition of different skills and talents and expertise that's also at play in the question of what companies were most involved. Some were like web service providers. They hosted the websites and coded them in HTML (laughs) later that yeah so it's just like even the language that you use to talk about this outsourcing work was in 94 95 the language of advertising agencies having a language of you know this is like the production company that's going to do our commercials who's in charge of creative who's in charge of the brand like that's where the value lies so advertising agencies in the beginning had the central claim on that But as the web between like 94 and like 96, it's sort of exploding in a a much larger mainstream audience that was up for grabs about whether the advertising agency was the best industry to see the future of what the web could do. So what was the Zima website like? Like Is is it a moment in which this technology is is so new that people are just going to go there and and like the fact that there's something there and find it cool? (laughs) I mean, I'm so happy you used the word cool in that question. <laughs> there is a fantastic video, an archival video that is available that I watched from PBS from uh, October of 1995 when in an interview between the head of modem media and the PBS interviewer, the PBS interviewer keeps on saying, so you're telling me this is cool. What's so cool about this? The Moda Media founder is, is saying, this is a cool site. This is a cool site where people go. People go to find out what the internet is, what's out there. Because this is a time when people probably have heard at this point the internet. It's been on the cover of Time magazine in 93, but definitely less than 50% of the U.S. adult population has been online at this point. So it exists mostly as a discourse of wonder. <laughs> and so the Zima site provided a destination 
And it also, you know, it printed Zima.com on the caps, which sent a special little message to anybody who knew what the web was. But most people probably didn't. You don't think twice about it. But if you see it, it's like, oh, wink, wink from Zima. They get it. (laughs) You could go online. You have a destination. And it was populated with content. So Zima was, like many early commercial websites, borrowing the strategies of amateur sites, strategies like free stuff. Here's free images. Use this as wallpaper for your computer. Here's free sound clips. Here's free, you know, so just the the gift economy of the internet. And also this was a moment before search engines, especially search engines like Google, had achieved a usefulness that, that people felt confident that they could find what they wanted. So creating lists of cool sites or cool destinations and literally wandering around the web was part of the experience. And so Zima, I think, did a nice job as a, as a commercial effort to try to understand and integrate itself within the codes of net culture at the time. When I think of the internet in kind of the era we're talking about, I mean, I remember <laughs> this little media company called AOL. <laughs> that to me is kind of jumping out as like one of the first major media companies to kind of leverage the internet and turn it into this big thing and, you know, put the internet at a bunch of people's homes, you know, have a website of their own, you know, their own email systems. Can you talk a little bit more about kind of what AOL meant to this era of the internet and kind of the role it played as both the internet service provider and the internet browser and the media company to use the internet. That's interesting because every word that you used just now was not the web. And so what's interesting in one way is AOL, especially not in the beginning, was not the web. And so there was a tension from the beginning about the difference between the free and open internet of which the web is a graphical navigation global hypertext system in which you can navigate the internet and closed, proprietary, commercial, gated communities like AOL, like CompuServe, like Prodigy, that were graphical, that were, you know, you needed a modem, but you would only connect with other AOL subscribers, for example. I think for many people, there was, or at least I know my first um, internet experience did not come from AOL, but it came from, I think, Apple eWorld. But a similar sense of like, I was confused. I didn't, when you don't know what the hell you're talking about, and you're just like, oh, it's a, it's a network, and there's this cool thing in the web, and you can find it, and it's amazing. And you're just like, okay, where is it? Is this it? Am I on it? <laughs> but that's, that's sort of what it felt like. And then the distinction that starts to emerge between the web and internet service providers it's really interesting, and I think that you could chart, like, through the, the rise and fall and the drama of AOL, a story about the internet and the web. It's also a story of bad timing, you know, a story of, like, a whole bunch of things. But thinking about how AOL, like, had to constantly reinvent itself to go from, remember those disks, mm-hmm. yep. right? So, like, what does it mean to, like, now reconceive your business not as, like, a timed subscriber model? Like, that's not going to work anymore. So you need a different model. So then what is it, what changes now when you have, uh, you know, unlimited hours, $19.99 per month? It's like, okay, so that worked, you know? So it wasn't like AOL was 
necessarily like the website. It was like the start point, you know? And for when you're trying to understand with the internet, it was especially in the, with the web, especially in the 90s, the, the problem of how do you monetize this thing that's free? It's so great because it's free. Well, then how the hell do you make money on it? And then why invest in it? What's the rationale behind it? AOL, I think, seemed to provide a pretty nice rationale for how this might be a, a very viable business because they provided the connectivity, still like, you know, assuming a type of subscriber model, but provided the connectivity and then the portal that would structure your entryway, the window into the web. So there's a possibility there for like, you know, advertisers to, oh, the, the price to get some visibility on that startup screen mm -hmm. is a, a particular portal logic of like the 1998 era. But that was huge. And I think AOL like built on that. And it was, what, January of 2000 that they merge with Time Warner. And it is March of 2000 that the collapse begins. That's just unfortunate, but... Right. Well, and just in coming from the other side of the media business, mm -hmm. the perception at the time that AOL had all this value and that Time Warner had none. It's, oh, it's old know. media. It's done. Yes. Right? As opposed to Time Warner conceivably is about to be purchased by AT&T. And you know, what is that value? It has nothing to do with web or not. It has to do with the, the content library. Right. Those were strange times, retrospectively. <laughs> so the book layers a conversation about design uh, alongside the economic speculation that surrounded the web. And can you talk some about that? This, this is a book that emerged from dissertation research that I, that I started in 2005, so like a, a, very, like a while ago. So it, it comes along with me, and it moves as I go. And I did not want to do any kind of project that involved the economy because yeah. I'm not an economically-minded person. Uh, in fact, economics is the one class that I ever failed in college. And it's just like, it, it's mind-blowing. Then it became this thing that I really had to get into and understand. I had to understand how the stock market worked and what the Security Exchange Commission is and, like, you know, how a company goes public and trying to figure out and learn all of those things when it was not necessarily my cup of tea was None tough. of that is covered in, econom in no. Economics 101. Yeah, it's right. No, you're right. You're right. right. You're right. Supply and demand. Yeah, yeah, yeah Some right. of that. <laughs> I see a graph and I just panic. I don't know. <laughs> I see an interface and I'm like, get excited. I don't know what that is. What if you see an interface that's a graph? <laughs> I don't know. Let's try it. <laughs> uh, I wanted to, you know, talk about this chronologically, because we'll want it, you know, I think it makes a narrative easier to tell, but also it's a process of, of building up over time and changing quickly. So I know that I wanted to cover changes that were especially between like 97 and, and 2000. At the time that I started this research in 2008, 2007, people were already talking just about the dot-com boom as this one thing. Like, it was, like, just this crazy time, and it was just, like, it, the same craziness, fo the same fog seemed to hang over the air. And I was like, well, how did that fog get there? Who blew it in? How long did it stay? Was there a new cloud that people got excited about along the way? So it was sort of like I was trying to go back and historicize, well, what happens between 97 and 2000? And how do you slice those things so tiny without, like, so what should I make the break? Like, the year of 98? 
the year of 99. Like, that's so arbitrary. So instead, I, I decided to use the moments that are sort of designated by economists as uh, structural developments in a speculative bubble. So basically, like all bubbles go through a series of stages. They might not be exactly these stages, but like four basic stages included would be starting with displacement, like an idea that something changes people's ideas about what the future might look like, to boom, which is, oh, you know, Netscape just went public. Did you hear how much money it made? Like that's like the beginning of like excitement, to euphoria, which is changes when now it's really no longer about understanding like the price earnings ratio in order to see what's like a good buy. You're going on gut instincts on what you think other people think is a good buy. And you're sort of like, that's why it's like all this language of vaporware and vapor stuff, because it was so much about trying to imagine what other people were imagining the future looked like and putting bets on that. That builds from like the fall of 98 until the spring of 2000. So thinking about design changes, after I just you know, say that, it's not like that any industry is disconnected from the economy. You know what I mean? Like a, a boom in, in one in industry is going to cause a, a hiring trend. New people are going to come in. New skills are going to be valued. My first job being teaching students how to design a web page, what a good web page was in 1996 and 97, and how quickly those things changed because I spent so much time teaching students how to you know, master those industry standard skills that were constantly changing. I was very attuned to new paradigms that would emerge, that a good website is silent, for example, that uh, if you have background noise, that's like amateurish, that was you know, the, the remnants, your MIDI file in the background playing that Star Wars theme is a remnant of a different internet era. So went through that period for a while of a graphical organization that a website should visually make sense to, to people that are not familiar with computer culture. It should look like something like a CD-ROM or a magazine or something like that. But then in this changes that start to happen around 1998 between how do you, again, this conversation, how do you make money from the internet, e-commerce, and so now it's sort of like excitement about the internet has a hope to be sort of like pinned on e-commerce as a particular model of how you could actually make money. And so this is when, like from the fall of 1998, so really like through 1999, the number of like IPO companies going public that are selling pet food, toys, I mean everything, like every single company it seems like goes public. And as a result of that, though, the skills, it, it, this is like, well, what companies are considered to be worthy targets of acquisition by companies that are trying to build? Before, it might be this like graphical company. Well, now it's going to be this, um, this back end, this company that, you know, whatever, can do secure transactions or that has experience in commerce or legacy systems with banks. You know, just, you know, this very different set of skills. So that is one of the ways that I think that changes in the economy and changes in design sort of impact one another because it's about perceptions of how you can make money in this moment, in this industry at this time. And, uh, and then seeing sudden paradigm shifts in which suddenly like a new idea comes up and, 
the industry is configuring to be able to try to turn very quickly to respond immediately to those changes. What are bits of this history that you think have largely been forgotten that you think we'd all be better off remembering? One of the chapters in the book talks about social media in 1995 and 1996. This goes back to the Web 1.0 question. I looked at a case study of these two different web projects that were both huge investments that were about celebrating the power of the internet in a single day. So one of these like, you know, 24 hours around the world, which media love to do, like satellite television did this in the 1960s, Lisa Parks writes about that. So it's, you know, this is just sort of like the big event. It's a media event, especially for the internet. So like, you know, what for me, like, okay, great, nice case study to see how people are actually trying to represent the power of the internet and how they're trying to talk about it. And so I compared two projects, one from the fall of 1995 that came out of MIT and another that was from February of 1996. And the earlier one has so many things that we're familiar with with social media today. Followers, comment, being able to rate a comment up or down, logging in, having a profile page. It included all of that. And it was about logging in and seeing how ordinary users of 1995 made sense of the internet and web culture at the time. And it also would automatically populate their profile page with results from the activity that they participated in in the site. So in other words, it's automatically generated content, the kind that we would see today when you go browse around something and then you can come back or you know that you've been tracked or the activity of your movement through the web is then presented back to you. Those are some of the features that we generally think about as like a web 2.0 model. But they were also the features that were some of the first features that were celebrated by people that were thinking about the power of the web. When media industries come on board, there's, you know, another conflict here because, you know, it's about like, you know, what skills are you good at? And for um, some of the uh, people that were involved in the, in the second project, the earlier one was seen as too amateurish. If the internet and the web are going to be really taken seriously at a moment before it's sort of like been habituated into our routine, it has to look good. It has to look like something you'd want to get into. So it's almost as if the professionalization had to happen first in order for like a mass audience to be, I don't know, familiar or something with this space. And then with the crash of the economy and 9-11, there's a remaking of the ideology of what the web means. And part of that is bringing back participation. And part of that is many of those strategies that were first conceived as, you know, part of the power of participation. So let's kind of bring this conversation to an end and bring this conversation to a head. I mean, what kind of brings the era that we're talking about to an end, you know, to use the terms that you don't like, the Web Mm -hmm. 1.0 versus Web 2.0, what kind of is the bridge there? And what happens in design that leads to that? Instead of ending at something that I call Web Mm 2.0, I end instead by thinking about how the 
discourse, and by that I mean the way we talked about the web, but also the way that industries were organized, shifted between 2000 and 2003 and 4, and a new dominant way of understanding the web came to be talked about. And that new dominant way was called UX, or user experience design. And it's still one of the dominant ways of thinking about interaction design. And it's, in fact, become so prominent that it's not even just about design anymore. That if any company is going to be attuned to their customers, users, etc., user experience design recognizes that every touch point that your customer interacts with is a moment of interacting with your brand and your website and your mall entrance and your all of those things are a user experience and so how are they cohesively designed one of the the key companies um, called adaptive path that really started a lot of this user experience design philosophy by making it sort of the the heart of their company it's like their company mission in 2010 they were purchased by capital one So that's really interesting. What does a user experience company, what does Capital One want to do with that? But if you think about this as an encroaching logic on financialization and culture at large of understanding user experience as a dominant philosophy, it would make sense that a company like Capital One would want expertise in that particular area. But what I was finding in the key change, or the thing that I would say is underestimated is a very quiet excitement that occurred when Google, at least and I'm gathering this from interviews and blog posts that were written by uh, web designers at the time. When Google redoes Google Maps and they launch a new, they, they, they came up with a new technical system for dealing with lag. So meaning when you would go to a map online, think about how often we might go to like Google Maps or something like that. And it's like you click on something, you know it's slow and it takes a little while for all those squares to fill in. So this was how do you make an experience with a map that you can just drag and you don't see those squares fill in? How do you not notice the loading of the map? That's user experience. And so for designers that other companies like an adaptive path that saw what uh, solutions that people were putting together, like not having this map reload in a way that brought attention to it, got people very, very excited about the potential of the web and what it would mean to have a web that made sense to a broader public. The idea that designers needed to be empathetic to users that don't have the same technical know-how as they do. Instead of Web 2.0 having all of this like brouhaha of like excitement and partisan democracy and users and like the cover of Time <laughs> magazine, I think it was more like the quiet awe of seeing the map drag <laughs> smoothly that was the beginning of participatory culture and taking user experience seriously. All right. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap it up. And that's it for this edition of Media Business Matters. If you want to learn more about Media Business Matters, you can go to amandalots.com and click on the podcast link at the top of the page. If you want new episodes delivered to your feed as soon as they're available, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and on Google Podcasts. Megan Ankerson, where can we find you on Twitter? At 
Meg Sap Ank. Was it M E G S A P A N K? Amanda? At Dr. TV Lots, D R T V L O T Z. And you can find me at Alex Entner. That's Alex I N T N E R. Megan Ankerson, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you all for listening. We'll be back soon with our next episode.